a well-known saying goes like this, that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Have you ever heard of that before? And that's a really good statement. I like it. That statement recognizes that there are the most important things, but also acknowledges the existence of the lesser important things. The main thing isn't the only thing, but that statement helps us recognize that there is an order of priorities. I believe that that is what this passage that we will look at today speaks about. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Micah has made his case to the southern kingdom of Judah. There will be future judgment for past sins, but then on the flip side, there will also be future blessings for past promises. Okay. So even though Israel will it continues to disobey God and break their side of the covenant, even though that continually happens, and God is very frustrated by that, God will ultimately fulfill his promises to Israel after they are disciplined and course-corrected. But for now, and we are in the third section of this short book of Micah, now there is the call to change your mind, to change your ways, to repent of your present sins. And do it now. Repent now for your sins. Change your mind about that there is this fallacy in your mind that your sins can meet your needs. And that is just wrong. It's a lie from the pit. That God is the one who will meet your needs according to his riches and glory. So repent now. Change your mind about that fallacy that your present sins can meet your needs. There's a better way. There's the grace of God. Grace is by far the greatest sin buster that has ever come down the pike. So rely upon God and his giftedness. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6, and God asks why Israel has sinned against him. And then he kind of makes himself uh, relationally vulnerable, and he says, is it something that I did or didn't do? Have I exasperated you? Have I given you goals that were impossible to achieve? Have I somehow frustrated you? Have I given you a roadblock or a speed bump that you didn't know about? And have I set you off course? Have I done something to mess you up? Have I caused you to sin in any sort of way? The evidence would show that God's actions have only ever benefited his people, and he gave them three exhibits, you could say, exhibits A, B, and C, because this was kind of like a court case. First, Micah reminds the readers of the Passover, this wonderful celebration of God's deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage. I let my people go. So it reminds them of the importance of the Passover and the key players, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron. He also reminds them of the various attempts of non-Israelites to curse that nation. And a Moabite king called a prophet, a non-Israelite, non-Jewish prophet, to curse Israel. And that prophet reported to that king, God's not going to allow that to happen. God will not curse his people. And so it didn't happen. In fact, Balaam only blessed God's people. And then he reminded them, Exhibit C, of their glorious crossing across the Jordan from the east to the west as God held the water back and allowed them the pleasure of their occupying the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. 
the land that God gave to them, or was, uh, I should say, in the process of giving to them. And they would break across from Shittim to Gilgal to take Jericho, and then go north and then south and conquer most of the land. They should have conquered all of it, but they only conquered some of it. And so today they're still paying for that. So Micah played the part of the people in response to God's faithfulness. So Micah kind of takes on the attitude and perspective of an average Israelite after hearing these reminders of God's faithfulness to them, that they've been listening all along to the false prophets. And the false prophets prophets were telling them what they wanted to hear. They were itching their ears because they had itchy ears. They wanted to be scratched. And so, so it's like the false prophets were saying, oh, you guys are fine just the way you are. You're not doing anything wrong. The reason why we're going through hard times right now, it's just an arbitrary act of nature. It's just a happenstance. There's nothing to do with um, how you are spiritually. You guys are fine. You're God's covenant people. That's what the false prophets were feeding the people. But then there were the prophets of God. There were the Micahs, the Amoses, the Isaiahs who said, the reason why you're going through bad times is precisely because of your behavior and your spiritual condition. And so you need to change your mind. You need to change your ways because you're breaking your side of the covenant. And so there were some people who listened to both sides, and maybe they were considering Micah's approach, his perspective on this. And so in verses 6 and 7, Micah takes on that mentality of an Israelite, thinking maybe what Micah is saying is true. Since God has been so good, and he makes his case with exhibits A, B, and C, and so many other, that since God has been so good, what do we do now? How do we respond? How do we approach God? How do we worship God? If Micah is indeed right, what can we pay God to make things even? And so Micah truly knows his audience. He knows the heart of the Israelite, the average religious Jew who thinks, okay, we just need to offer a lot more sacrifices and maybe we need to dig a little deeper to kind of pay God off, to bribe him, to pay for our sins. That's what God wants, after all. Let's just turn up the production of sacrifices. And so this is what he says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. And he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I offer, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God, are, are you like the Canaanite gods who wants the sacrifice of my son? Uh, maybe we can, maybe this God Yahweh is just like that. And so let's consider those as possible options. So Micah says here he calls God the exalted God. In Hebrew, that word means height. So he's the God of the heights. He's the God of the heavens. That's where he dwells. So what will it take for us to get to him? What ladder do I have to fabricate so that way I can get to God? What works do I have to do so that God will like me again? What gifts do I need to give him to placate him and to appease him? You see, this is the mind of the secular Israelite that has been influenced for years 
by the false prophets and by the surrounding nations, don't forget. So they were allowing their culture to influence them more than they influenced their culture. Don't miss out on that lesson, church. So how do we come before him, and what do we need to give to him? After all, child sacrifice was a Canaanite practice, sometimes done by Israel itself, but always condemned by the prophets. 2 Kings 16.3 tells us, He, Ahaz, who was one of the kings, followed the ways of the kings of Israel. So this is the northern kingdom. And even sacrificed his son in the fire. This was a king of Israel who sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So it had even risen to the level of royalty. They were practicing the same religious rituals as the Canaanites and sacrificing their own children. So Micah certainly wasn't condoning child sacrifice here. Micah was using hyperbole to show that although the Levitical sacrifices were all absolutely necessary, it was necessary that we take on an attitude of internal transformation rather than have an attitude of external religion. That is not what God wanted. An attitude of external religious ritual without heart change is not what God wants. In fact, someone wrote, The Lord had set up the Levitical system to provide, among other things, atonement for the people's sin. Micah, as a righteous member of the covenant community, was no doubt involved in the sacrificial system. He knew, however, that the sacrifices were meant to be outward expressions of inner trust and dependence on God for his grace and his mercy. So when you offer the sacrifices, and the Levites had five sacrifices. They had the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the fellowship offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings. You can read that in the book of Leviticus. So they had all of these offerings that aimed at different areas of life, and they were all absolutely necessary. So he's not criticizing the need to give offerings to give sacrifices because they needed their sin atoned for, and Jesus hadn't come yet. He was still a long ways off. And so they needed to do this, almost like a credit card, to just you know keep the payment, kick the can down the road. It wouldn't fully pay for it, but it would buy some time, see. And so you can do religious rituals and still be the biggest hypocrite in the world should they still be done? Absolutely, yes. He's not saying not to do the sacrifices, but what he is saying is that you need to have the right attitude when you do sacrifices. A lot of people have misinterpreted this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So has God communicated to his people what he expects, what he desires from them. Absolutely, yes. Look what the beginning part of verse 8 says. And this is a verse that a lot of you are going to recognize. It's probably the most popular verse or famous verse in the entire book of Micah. And Micah says in verse 8, he says, He has showed you, O man, or O Israelite, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? So we know that this attitude of dependence and trust and love and affection and mercy and grace was a necessary prerequisite when we do those external rituals, you see. 
In Psalm 51, David wrote, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. That's really not the build-out. That's not really the goal. That's not the thing that you really want or desire from us. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. That's the necessary prerequisite. That is exactly what God desires. Still do the sacrifices, but make sure you do the internal work before you do the external. And so to do the rituals does, does not require an inner heart change. But the things that God does want from us are very beautifully expressed in the second part of verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God craves from us. He still wants the offerings. He still wants those things. But then the inner heart change will produce these adjustments. They will give a proper attitude for the believer in the Old and New Testament as well. First of all, to act with justice. That means to treat others in an honest and upright way, in an ethical way, especially in the context of Micah, the people who are more vulnerable. Because the people in Micah's day knew what true oppression was. We don't know what true oppression is in the United States of America in the last 50 years, for sure. No one does. But the Israelites knew what true oppression was. Across the globe, a lot of people know what true oppression is. But I want you to act with justice, to treat others in an honest and upright way. Don't steal others' inheritances or their land. Act ethically. I want you to love mercy. And this is the great Hebrew word. I want you to love hesed. That's faithful, loyal, loving kindness. It is what Ruth had for Naomi. I want you to love people with mercy. I want you to be generous. I want you to keep your commitments, specifically a a covenant-type commitment where you are bound. You are bound to it. That is said. That's biblical, especially Old Testament love. It is kindness. Uh, That's steadfast and faithful, regardless of what the other person does. I am determined to only control what I can control, and that is my choice to love. I can't control how they respond. All I know is I'm responsible for myself. I will continue to love. That's what I want to see. That comes from an inner heart change. And then I want you to walk humbly, uh, probably the most difficult of all three, to walk humbly, being attentive to God's will, submitting myself to the way God wants to do it, of what he wants and how he wants it. So when was the last time that we were reading Scripture and we were convicted to either not do something or to do something that we weren't doing that we should do? When was the last time we allowed that experience to take place in our hearts? Where we're like, you know, the Bible's right. I'm off on this. I need to do a spirit-driven manual override and change this about my beliefs, my attitude, or my behavior, or maybe all three. That's what walk humbly means for us in the New Testament context. Submitting oneself to the way that God wants to do it and what he wants to do. Uh, It's basically saying, don't be so full of yourself, but rather be full of God. And how do you do that? Well, you take on an 
a humble attitude. You recognize who's really in charge here. Someone else, I have to give someone else credit. It's one of the commentaries I read for this preparation. Um, I have to give them um, uh, kudos for or the um, credit for this statement. I love this statement. I'm going to write this in my prayer journal, I think. Okay, here it is. To walk humbly means that we are to have a conspicuous fellowship with God. I love that. Why? Well, because conspicuous means it's obvious. That means it's true and authentic, but it is so full-bodied. It is, becomes so you that it's obvious outwardly. So we are to have a conspicuous fellowship with God. How about that for a New Year's resolution for 2024? Where it's uh, bubbling over and we're... We're ministering not from deficit after deficit after deficit of power and strength and energy, but we are ministering and serving from an overflow because we have this conspicuous fellowship with God. I love it. Let that happen. Cooperate with the process that he's working out in you so then it will happen. So you see, God, he doesn't need anything from us. One of, my, one of my favorite characteristics or attributes of God is that he is independent. He's, he's the only being in the history of the universe who is independent. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. But he's a God of relationship, so he still wants to have that. He desires things from us. He doesn't need anything but he desires things from us. So external rituals do not require internal transformation because we can just do them in a rote way. Here are your sacrifices. Here is communion. Here is reading my Bible. I can check those boxes off good. Here is my prayer. I'm just a drone, basically. Anybody can do it. AI can do that. External rituals do not require internal transformation. But these qualities do require internal change if you want them to be authentic and you want them to continue on. So for New Testament believers, that rebirth and that interchange is exactly what the goal and the build-out is. What do you mean, this internal change? Just a few verses. My goodness, we could spend hours on this, but we won't. Don't worry. We have to be done by 5.30 because the summit starts at 5.30. So, <laughs> Everyone's heart sank, fell into depression. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then, of course, Nicodemus misunderstands him. Oh, do I have to go back in my mother's womb to be born again? No, I'm not talking physically. I'm talking spiritually, but I am still talking literally. We overwork that word, literal. Have you noticed that the last 20 years? So we use the word literal to, to provide emphasis, but that's really not what the true meaning of literal means. It means actual. Okay, It means something to be actually true. So... What Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3 was not a physical thing. He made that point. He drove it home. It is spiritual, but it's still literal. It's actual. It's not metaphorical. It's not a rhetorical idea. Not an intangible concept. It is an actual, spiritual, literal event that takes place inside someone's soul, inside their being. 
Their spirit is ignited with life for the first time in their existence. It goes from dead to alive. In fact, that's what he says in verse 24. In the next section, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And so one second we were dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking, very much alive physically. But then the next moment, we're alive spiritually. Bam. We are justified. We're saved. We're forgiven. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. I think that's perfect tense, which means it is a completed thing. Galatians 2.20 tells us this, I have been crucified, meaning my old spiritual self, not an idea, not a metaphor, but actual, literal, spiritual condition. I have, my old self, have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So I have a brand new identity. A lot of the Christians in the first century church, when they became believers, and then they were baptized in water, which symbolizes their actual spiritual baptism that happened at the moment of their salvation, the moment they placed their faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin. And they, what they would do is at their baptism, they would reveal their new name. And it made a lot of sense. Because now they have new identities. So they're no longer this person. They're really no longer Saul. Now they're Paul. And that's not such a bad idea. Tradition kind of went away. It's not a biblical command or anything, so it doesn't really matter that much. But um, there is a transformation that does take place. And so the moment that I believe... There I'm dead, but the moment I believe I come across from death into life, and then I begin the process of sanctification, the moment of salvation, of spiritual salvation, that if I died at that point, I would become totally redeemed. But at that point in time, as I remain physically alive, I am freed from the penalty of sin. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. But then in the process of sanctification, where all the people in this room right now who are born-again believers in Jesus Christ, you are in the process of sanctification whether you realize it or not. And you have the choice every day, every moment, to cooperate with it or fight against it. I suggest you cooperate with it. Because that's God's agenda for you. So what do you mean cooperate with it? Well, I mean, I need to give you an example. Um, I reinterpret the purpose of trials. I jettison my old view of trials and tribulations, disappointments and difficulties that they are just a pain in the neck uh, to be avoided at all costs, but yet I can't seem to avoid them, right? Then I take on a biblical worldview of what the purpose of trials is. It's to wear off my rough edges. Uh, those, Those difficulties, those disappointments can actually enhance my sanctification and my discipleship process. But I've got to have the right interpretation of what those trials mean. See, So the sanctification process is ongoing. Sometimes we 
lose a little ground. Sometimes we gain it. Sometimes we lose it again. But hopefully the movement is continually up. In the sanctification process, I am freed from the power of sin. In the justification process, I'm freed from the penalty of sin. In the sanctification process, I'm freed from the power of sin. And then finally, when I'm resurrected, when I receive my glorified body, then I am freed from the presence of sin. And I won't even be able to sin. And don't worry about it because you're not going to want to sin. You don't even know what sin is anymore. And your redemption is complete. So, some interpret the command in verse 8. Some interpret it to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Some people coming from a more liberal theological perspective say that God just simply demands this behavior. Um, and, and this, if you do these things, this is what saves you. So this is what Christians should do. This is kind of one of the verses that folks from the social justice movement take on as their biblical rationale for doing good works. It's the social gospel. And, um, in fact, let me put a little plug in here for in a couple of weeks to commemorate Pro-Life Sunday. One of the things I'll be talking about is the vast difference between social justice and biblical justice. So that way you'll be equipped to know the difference between the two. And so they would see, a liberal Christian would say, um, this is how we're saved if we do these things. And so in essence, what, what they're saying is that we should do good works. But we are not saved by our good works. In fact, you and I don't even have any good works. The good works that we need are the works of Jesus. And once we've believed in that and accepted that for ourselves, his substitutionary atonement, and I'm changed from the inside out, then I can do acceptable works for God. But until then, Isaiah the prophet chimes in and he says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Rags that come from a woman for that difficult time of the month that a woman experiences. That's what he's saying there in Isaiah. So we don't have any good works. So there's no way in the world we could be saved by them. But the whole counsel of Scripture teaches that to show justice and mercy and true humility is absolutely impossible without a new nature. If you want to do it continually and if you want to do it authentically, you need an interchange. But for Israel and Judah, it might just be too late. Uh, These They've really gone too far, perhaps. The national sins have just gone on way too long. And so uh, the prophet Micah issues forth an indictment against them. Um, The thing that you need to do before we reach the last moment is found in verse 9. What it says, Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod. And the one who appointed you, heed the rod of discipline. And you need to listen to God and fear. You need to hear and you need to fear God. And then you can, you're changing your mind. You're repenting of your sins, your national sins. And that's exactly what you need to do, Israel. 
You need to hear and fear God. You have some hope if you do that, but you're right on the cusp. You're right on the edge. You're about to experience calamity, just like the, uh, the northern tribes experienced. You're going to be destroyed by a different nation. Babylon is going to take over you. And so do this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Because when you fear God, when you have a reverent respect for Him, that's what fear means in this context, when you have a fear of God, that's the beginning of getting everything properly calibrated, everything properly aligned. Because when you see Him as your final authority and your general, your Lord and your master, then you get to see everything from his perspective, from a bird's eye view. And then you have the shot at being successful in his definition of what success means, of course. So he gives here a list of indictments. You have, you have been dishonest with one another. Verses 10 and 11, look what that says. It says, am I still to forget a wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and your short ephah, which is a unit of measurement? which is accursed, shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? You've been dishonest with other people, and you've taken advantage of the weak people. You've oppressed them, and you've lied to them. Look at verse 12 says, Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. You've lied to one another, you've oppressed one another. And so here's the indictment, here are the consequences of your sins. Unless you hear and fear God, this is what you're going to experience as a nation. You're going to experience a lack of satisfaction. All the things that you thought were going to be fun, all the things that you thought were going to be fulfilling, all the things you thought would satisfy you, won't. Look at verses 13 and 14 say, Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. And so there will be a lack of satisfaction. And then in verse 15 is an interesting verse. It says, You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil on yourselves. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. And that little phrase there, the literary device that he's using, is called a futility curse. And that is common amongst other covenants from the ancient Near Eastern world. And basically, the usual blessings of God on nature will be reversed. And all the things that you thought were going to be fulfilling and tasty and good and enjoyable won't be. That is a, this futility curse is a divine disruption of the natural order of things. That will be your experience and your destiny. And finally, you people, you Israelites, you followed after false kings. Verse 16, it says, You have observed the statues, the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. You listen 
to these two horrible kings, Omri and Ahab. Someone wrote that Omri, as a king in Samaria, did evil in God's eyes and was more wicked than all of the kings before him, including the nation to worship false idols. Ahab did even worse by building a Baal temple and altar in Samaria. Ahab and Jezebel cruelly killed the prophets of God and lied to have Naboth stoned so they could take his vineyard. You listen to these people and you followed after them. Well, what should we do? Hear and fear God. God's people should hear and fear Him so they will not suffer consequences. But it was too late for Israel because within 25 years, the northern kingdom would be obliterated by Assyria and they'd be carried off. And then about 140 years later, it would be too late for the southern kingdom of Judah and they would be taken by Babylon. So what does it mean for us? The Israelites, well, they still should do their sacrifices, but they need to experience the interchange to produce other-centeredness, the other-centeredness of justice, mercy, and humility. Still do the sacrifices, but do them with an internal transformation that shows itself in justice, mercy, and humility. That's the main thing. You and I, in this day and age, you and I should still do the disciplines of prayer, scripture, church, witnessing, and giving, and a whole host of other things. You can throw fasting in there too. We still need to do those things, but the main thing for us is to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and our neighbor as ourselves. And how in the world, how can we have a chance of doing those things? I can do the disciplines of prayer, scripture, church, witnessing, and giving, and you know what? I can do them even as a non-believer. But can I truly love God and my neighbor as myself uh, without an inner transformation? Uh, not consistently, and certainly not authentically. I can't do those things. So how is it possible to do those things? How is it possible to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and our neighbor as ourselves? Jesus said it. Those are the top two commandments. That's the summary of the law altogether. How is it possible that I can do those things? I need to have an inner transformation. I need to be born again. I need to place my faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sin. And at that moment, I am justified before God. And I, my spirit is ignited with life. And then I go through the sanctification process. And I continue to abide in him. I continue to allow him and his things to influence me less than I allow the world to influence me. In fact, I'm doing a turnaround. I'm the one who's actually influencing the culture. So then I can do the loving God and the loving others as myself, like I should, 
And then, when I do, the disciplines. When I do, the prayer, and the scripture, and the church, and the witnessing, and the giving. I'm doing it not as a Robotron or an AI. I'm doing it from my heart because I've been born again and I've been changed and transformed and continually changed from the inside out. My friends, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and I pray, Father, that if anyone here has not trusted in Jesus as their Savior, I pray that they would simply recognize the truth of the fact that we're all sinners. And we've done and thought some pretty bad stuff. And we are, we come into this world, unfortunately, separated from you, the Son, and the Spirit. So to bridge that gap, thank you for sending Jesus to us to die for our sins, to pay for the penalty of our sin, and the giving of a righteousness and a purity, a holiness that Um, comes from you. So thank you for those gifts of forgiveness and righteousness. We need both of those a real lot. So if someone has not trusted in Jesus, I pray that we would transfer our trust from something else or nothing else to Jesus and do that right now in the quietness of our hearts. And we too, just like Nicodemus learned, we will be born again. We will be ignited with life. I pray that we would do that. We would believe in our hearts and even communicate it to you. I pray, Father, that that would take place. And for the rest of us, I pray that we would continue to intentionally, um, purposefully, allow ourselves to be sanctified and to cooperate with the great work that you have promised will be done inside of us. Thank you for teaching us about the main thing and that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.